Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. There's some up here. Come on. Yeah. Have any of you folks ever built a, a, a simple concrete block building, a cinder block building? Anybody ever done that? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty simple but a, an amazingly effective and strong method of construction. Um, I've, I've been a part of building a few of these. The two that I remember most were ones where we had a really hard time getting all the materials together. Uh, in Guatemala, we built uh, a number of cinder block type buildings in uh, the Ishili area, way up about 10,000 feet up in the mountains, and we had to haul every cinder block by hand up those hills. And even when you're young and strong, that, that's, uh, that's a lot of effort. We built a similar building uh, like that in the camp that I served in Germany. And there the blocks weren't hard to get to the site because it was all flat. However, the only water source was, was over a, a hundred yards away from the building site. So we had to mix all of the mortar by hand and then take it by shubkar and by, by wheelbarrow and, and then piece by piece load it up. Back-breaking work that was. Um, however, when you get it, you've, you've felt this if you've done it. When you get it all done, there's this awesome feeling when it's all put together and you just sit down with joy inside the building. It's just, um, it's really worth all the labor. And that feeling seems to be similar to what God feels as he builds his church. Peter describes how God brings together all of the building blocks that make up his spiritual house. And do you know what the materials are? People. The Father brings together all the people that comprise his dwelling, and he mortars them into one composition. All God's people said? Amen. The effort that is required to, to build that building overshadows all other construction costs in human history combined. There was a massive, unthinkably huge exertion that made it all happen. A price was paid by Jesus, God the Son. He is the keystone who holds all God's church together. And if you believe in Jesus, you're a part of it all. You are blessed, you are exalted, you are honored because God purposefully chose you to be an integral part of His creation, His building, His church. This is incredible stuff. Look, look with me, um, and you're going to be in awe. Look with me. Open your Bible to 1 Peter. Near the end of your Bible, you run into 1 Peter, and we're going to read our passage for today in toto, verses 4 through 10. Actually, we're going to start at verse 2 to get the, to get the flow. So go to verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted, by the way, that's a that's a first-class condition of the Greek, which means it operates like a sense. You have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that majestic and inspiring? Now, zero in on verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 show that the elect are God's church building program. By the way, that's the headline in your notes. Uh, if you're here in the auditorium, you got a bulletin when you came in, open it up. You'll see on the left-hand side there, if you're online, we are thrilled to be with you wherever you are. You should have a link from your host that will take you to the notes, and it says the elect are God's church building program. The hymn in verse 4 refers to Jesus. Here's what's happening in verses 4 and 5. God chooses those who choose Jesus. It's a fascinating antinomy. It's one of your fancy words for today, boys and girls. A philosophy word, antinomy, on the count of three. Say, and we've said it before. Say antinomy. One, two, three. Antinomy is summarized very succinctly in the dictionary. It is an apparent contradiction between two apparently equal, equally valid principles. Notice in your text, the humans come. They draw near to God the Son. At the same time, God is the builder, and as such, He selects His building materials. That's why our being built in verse 5 is passive from the human perspective. And verse 9 declares that God chooses. He chooses who comes. He called them out of darkness. How can this be? Do people choose to come trusting God the Son? Do we choose to believe in Jesus as the payment for our sins? Yes. It's right there in God's text. Does. God select people. Does he initialize them via his choice? Does he call them himself? Yes. It's right there in God's word. How can it be both? I don't know. I don't know. But it is. Let me give you a paltry illustration. I'm sure this falls way short, but it may help. The buildings we built at that camp in Germany, they were solidly constructed of of cinder blocks. That was their construction. What made them strong were all those concrete blocks. But you would never know they were made of concrete. If you go there today, those buildings are still standing, and you will see that they are completely covered with wood. There's a veneer of wood inside and out, beautiful, finished German wood. It's both a cinder and wood building in one. In a similar way, we both draw near to God and we are drawn near by God. God's part is invisible to us, kind of like the cinder blocks in that building. We can only see the wood of human response, but we need to know that both are there. Here's a theologian's way of describing what's happening in verses 4 and 5. Alan Stibbs, brilliant teacher for years in London, He said, all who come to Christ in response to this preached word of the gospel find themselves incorporated by their relation to Him into a temple. They find themselves members of God's elect people. Their transference from the outer dark into the full light of enjoying the divine mercy, of belonging to His specially chosen people, is itself an exhibition to the universe of God's virtuous dealings. Close quote. God chooses those who choose Jesus. Secondly, Peter points out that Jesus is the living stone. That sounds really strange to my modern ears. Living stone. Sounds kind of creepy. Like something that would make the whole building fall. How many of you have ever been through an earthquake? Anybody here? You California transplants? Yeah, all right. Uh, they're, They're frightening, aren't they? And that's what living stone sounds like. It sounds like something that's moving and shaking. That's actually totally, totally backwards. Um, In first century thought, in first century thought, a living stone is a massive rock that cannot be cut. It cannot be shaken, can't be altered. Um, Think think of these Swiss mountains uh, right here, these mountains in Switzerland. Those, 
Those guys haven't moved since Noah's flood. And they won't move until the end of the age. You build your chalet on those mountains, you have got a very sturdy foundation. That's what Jesus is like, the living stone, a solid foundation. Now, here's something that fascinates me. This is a stone passage. Stone is a really important word in Peter's life. And it intrigues me what he did not say. Peter did not say, hey, come build on me, right? He specifically points out Christians are established on whom, everybody? On Jesus. Here's why that's so significant. At a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is very important to the story, but I don't have time to go into it right now, uh, Jesus asked a question of his 12 disciples. Uh, Matthew 16 describes it. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Shimon. That was his given name, Simon Shimon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you, and here he gives him a new word. He gives him a new name, Peter. Anybody know what Peter is, Petros is in Greek? What is it? It's rock, okay? Uh, and I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, ah, what is the this later? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind in earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There's that, there's that God-human antinomy again. Do you see that? What you do will have already been done in heaven. The timing originates from heaven. But, but more significantly for 1 Peter 2 is the fact that some people have taken this, the Matthew 16 passage, as proof that Peter was a pope. Uh, actually the first pope. And like all popes, he was supposedly has the power over human salvation. Who gets in and who doesn't? Now, that interpretation is very unlikely for many, many reasons, not the least of which is the context of the original conversation where Jesus is looking at a bunch of rock. Further, and this is most important, Peter totally avoids any connection like that. If he were a pope, if he were in charge of human salvation, who got in and who not, he would not say what he says in 1 Peter 2.4. He would say, you're built on me. I decide. But who does he say is the only, only, one and only living stone? Whom does he say, everybody? Jesus. That's the only foundation you build on. Too few do, though, because Jesus was rejected by people. The Greek word we translate rejected is a mouthful. Apodakimazmenon. Apodakimazmenon. It's an incredible term. It, it, means, it means rejected, broken into pieces, but, but there's more to it than that. Apedogemazmenon is a restoration word. Get this. It, yeah, it means rejected, but that rejection is merely a prelude to restoration. This is a huge idea in the Bible, and the authors of Scripture found in this amazing Greek word a perfect way to describe what God does. So, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use this term, apedokemazmenon, to describe how God rejected Israel because of their sin. He broke them. He scattered them to the ends of the earth, knowing, and most of the same passages describe this, that in his coming physical kingdom, he's going to draw Israel back from all over the earth and reestablish them. And then in the New Testament, every passage that uses apedokemazmenon describes not only Jesus' rejection, these passages also describe his resurrection to new life. That, that's why Peter alludes to Psalm 118 there in verse 7, that rejected Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. 
Best example that I can find of Apodoca Masmenon is in mosaics. You know, just the way the Greeks developed this amazing word, the Greeks also developed, they perfected the idea of mosaics. No one, no one ever made mosaics as beautifully as Greeks did. My, my friend Sharon, I have a friend named Sharon, she is a master in the mosaic art. And you know what Sharon does? She takes broken pieces, fragments of stone, and she turns them into amazingly beautiful things. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that, isn't that pretty? Doesn't she do beautiful work? And she would probably hate this because this is probably not her favorite, but that's too bad. Um, when Jesus was rejected, it was merely a prelude. The very idea of his rejection was planned as part of the brilliant restoration where, where the formerly rejected pieces come together in something, something beautiful and solid. This is the foundation. Now, read verse 5 again. You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus builds them together. You who trust Jesus are made into living stones yourself. You, scattered and broken as we all are, you are built up to be a royal residence, a building that is God's own church. You know, at the time Peter wrote this, the greatest temple ever constructed was still standing. The temple of Herod the Great in Jerusalem. In fact, parts of it were still being built when Peter wrote this. Herod the Great's temple was very likely in Peter's mind as God inspired this passage. Under the Romans, the Jews built this temple as a place of Hebrew worship. Using supplies from all over the world, they brought all those supplies together to build this as a focus of God's covenant. Now, even though Peter's original audience in northern Asia Minor... They may never have seen the Jerusalem temple, but they all knew of it. It, it, it. Classical accounts, and I'm not talking about in the Bible, classical accounts from all over the world describe that temple as the greatest temple ever built. They knew about it. And in the same way as that temple, Peter says Jesus edifies. He draws together his chosen ones. He takes them from all over the world, and he is right now, through this age, currently constructing them into the focus of God's new covenant. It, what we teach little kids in Sunday school is really a brilliant way to remember 1 Peter 2.5. Do, do, do you guys all know it? Come on, do, take your hands. Come on, everybody. If you don't know it, you'll learn it right now. Take your hands and put them like this with the thumbs inside, like that. Okay? All right. This is the... Here, oh, wait. Here you do here, don't you? This way. Okay. I learned it as this. That's the right way. No, okay. Here. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. You never knew that. you got to learn it right now. Put your coffee down. Here we go. Okay, come on. You ready? All right, here we go. Come on. <clears throat> here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the peoples. Right? That's, that's good. Those, that's the church. And they serve as his priesthood. Look at the text. As priests, our job is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Martin Luther unpacked this beautifully. He, he really taught 1 Peter 2 well. I just grabbed a few quotes from some of Luther's writings. Um, all Christians are of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes, but not all have the same work to do. Uh, from another one of his, his uh, missives, we are all priests, as many of us as are Christians. The ministers chosen from among us do all they do in our name. Uh, because we are all priests of equal standing, no one must push himself forward and take it upon himself without the consent and election to do that for which we all have equal authority. Luther gets Peter's point. Peter's declaring that in Jesus, 
Everyone's a priest. I get to be a priest. You get to be a priest. You get to be a priest. Anyone who trusts Jesus. Hooray! But that means that we are each expected to do the work of a priest, which is the very last idea in verse 5. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What do priests do? They offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices. Of course, that... That brings up the great mental question that you're asking in response to that. In your, uh, in your ancient Greek mosaic imitation, you're wondering, what makes for an acceptable spiritual sacrifice? Thank you so much for asking this great question. The Apostle Paul gives an awesome answer in Romans chapter 12. I'd like you to read the underlying portions of Romans 12 verse 1 with me. Therefore, by the way, the therefore, he's been talking about how Israel and the church, how the church is grafted into Israel. We'll get to that in a moment. That's the context, Romans 9 through 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Well done. You present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, because he is merciful, because he has called you out of darkness to salvation, you live for him. Um, in his training materials for our pastors that we, uh, that we are blessed to train in Uganda, one of our elders, Randall Satchel, uh, describes acceptable spiritual sacrifices really well. By the way, all those materials that our team has put together for the training in Uganda, it's excellent stuff. I recommend you get a copy of it and learn from it. It's, it's brilliant. Here's what Randall uh, says about acceptable spiritual sacrifices. These are spiritual sacrifices of self-autonomy in recognition of and submission to the overarching authority of God Almighty. Jesus told his disciples, by the way, this is from that exact same Matthew 16 passage we looked at. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his what, everybody? His cross and follow me. When we sacrifice our self-interest to the will of God, we offer a spiritual sacrifice and follow our Lord, who led by the ultimate example of submission to his Father's will on the cross, close quote. Of course, that makes you wonder, in your, in your Martin Luther voice, um, you're wondering, how? How can one specifically present oneself as a living sacrifice? East German, Martin, yeah, great question. Brother Martin, look at the next two statements, okay? Verse 1 said this, holy and pleasing God, this is your true what, everybody? Worship. Okay, hold that. That's number one. Now read verse two. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Verse three. For by the grace given to me, the Apostle Paul says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Three big ideas here. Number one, worship. Ship worth to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Number two, renew your mind in God's truth. Fight our natural tendency to conform to this world. And number three is in verse three, view, view yourself properly. Have, have, have a sensible understanding of self. David Barnes of our church staff was thinking all this through. He wrote me a great note. Uh, look what David wrote. He said, Wayne, Romans 12 and 1 Peter 2 teach me to know who I am in Christ. They also remind me, that I have a lot of work to be done in order to be Christ-like in my actions toward others. I, I must first be honest with myself and constantly take inventory to acknowledge where my heart is. And, and once I'm aware of why I do what I do, I can work on changing those thoughts and behaviors. Well said. All this answers the question, how do we do our job? 
Our job as priests is to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices. How? Number one, worship. Every day, ship worth to God. Praise God. Number two, renew your mind in the truth. Fight that natural tendency to conform to the world. And number three, view self properly. Have, have a sensible self-understanding to the elect, those who are elect, those who come to God by His calling. We are God's building program. We are priests offering acceptable sacrifices daily by praising God, by renewing our mind in the truth, and by viewing ourselves properly. Amen? All right, now reread 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 28. For it stands in Scripture, see, I lay in Zion... I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, and here a quote from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And, quote from uh, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 8, a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. You thought I used lots of quotes. Um, in these verses, here's what Peter does. He intricately develops applications through solid references. By the way, that's the topic on the right side of our notes. Peter develops applications through his use of reference material. A reference is where an author refers to something that has been written before. It can be an exact quotation. It can be an allusion. It can be a known image. It can be a play on words. Here's why this is important. The current text becomes richer because it incorporates the, the ideas in the reference. So, for example, I'm watching a movie, and one of the characters says, oh, that's his Achilles heel. What, what are they talking about? They're not talking about the tendon on the back. What, what's, the, what's the illusion? What's the reference? Who is it? To Brad Pitt, right. It's, um, it's, it's to, sorry, it's to Achilles and how he was, that was his one place that he was weak. If I'm reading a book and, and somebody says, man, that person is such a Scrooge, what, what is that a reference to? To what are they referring? Yeah, to, <laughs> very good, thank you. Please strike that from the recording. The, um, the, it, is, it is from Ebenezer Scrooge, from Dickens, his, his wonderful story, A Christmas Carol, right? And if I want to really understand what they mean by Scrooge, I need to go back and refresh my understanding of, of the pre-repentant Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens. Okay, when you understand the references, you get a whole lot more out of the current work. Peter knows this, and he draws from three poems in the Old Testament. I call these the great stone passages. Great stone passage number one, found in Isaiah 28. Look up here. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 15. Uh, For you said, Isaiah speaks to these people, we've made a covenant with death. We have an agreement with Sheol, uh, the place of the dead. By the way, this is fascinating. The context is this. The people that he's addressing are facing a really serious uh, kind of threatening cancel culture. Um, and, and it is coming on them. And they've decided the way they're going to get through this is by being chameleons. They're, they're going to they're gonna lie. They're going to pretend to be, yeah, oh, yeah, we agree with all that. And just go with the flow because then it will pass them by and they'll be safe, right? They're going to they're gonna pretend they're not who they are. Okay, that's, it's fascinating, all right? Uh, you've said we made a covenant with death. We have an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, it will not touch us. Because we've made falsehood our refuge, and we've hidden behind treachery. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. 
Hail will sweep away that false refuge, and water will flood your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be dissolved. Your agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. So now, do not scoff, or your shackles will become stronger. Indeed, I have heard, says Isaiah, from the Lord God of armies, a decree of destruction for the whole land. There is so much brilliance here, including another image of the great contrast between the firm foundation and and the false refuge of lies. We could study this all day, but we're going to stick to Peter's big idea. Why, Why did he allude to this text? Because when everything else gets swept away, the one who believes in God will be unshakable. Therefore, trust the Lord. Two clear applications here. First one's for the believer. Build on Jesus, the Messiah, the cornerstone. And as for non-Christians, they need to hear the warning. That those who trust God have got to keep boldly sharing truth with this poor, ever-changing world that just can't keep up with the cancellation of the moment. Only Jesus is lasting and solid. There are no deals with death. You're not in control of your own destiny. There's no bargaining with Sheol. Trust God's gracious provision or face the very real consequences. Great stone passage number two, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The unexpected miracle is the foundation rejected by human builders has become the cornerstone of the building. (laughs) This is so delightfully ironic and wonderful that people can't help but rejoice. And that's our second big point, rejoice. Why reference these particular stone passages? The overall idea is to prove that Jesus, Jesus is the only foundation for real life. But but there's more we're supposed to understand. We're supposed to draw out from the reference text. Great Stone Passage number one embeds the idea of trusting God and sharing with the lost who foolishly think they can control their own destiny. Great Stone Passage number two draws this into the text. It embeds the idea that, that there should be rejoicing. We should always be rejoicing at the shocking miracle of salvation. Here's Peter's third reference, Great Stone Passage number 3, Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Well, you talk about a passage that will be tattooed on every forehead today. Anyway, um, sorry. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You're to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he'll be a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. Many will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. The third application inlaid into Peter's letter comes from Isaiah 8. Do not fear what the, Lord, what the world fears. Turn to God and His Word instead. People are driven by so many fears, and they're almost always the wrong things to fear. Eschew all that and fear only God. All right, look at them all together. Drawing from these great stone passages, Peter calls us to trust the Lord, to share with the lost, to rejoice, and to regard God over our fears. I receive a lot of mail about fear, a lot of scared letters, so many concerns in our world. Almost all the letters I get are about legitimate fears. They're legitimate things they fear. Some of them even require action on the Christian's part. Yet, in our fear, in our frenzied activity, we tend to forget our calling. We lose our footing. Peter refers to the great stone passages so that we will rest on the rock. How do we do that? We trust the Lord. We share with the lost. We rejoice and we regard God 
over our fears. Amen? Okay, closing time. Let's read the end of our text again. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a quote from Isaiah 43, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a reference to Exodus 19, a people for his possession so you may proclaim the praises directly from Isaiah 43 of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you, you have received mercy. Here's what I hope you can find time to do this week. I hope you can find time to to take each of these passages to which Peter references and do what we did with the great stone passages. I I like the time to do it right now, but I hope you will do so because if you'll go study Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43, you'll find a lot of depth that's being embedded in Peter's comments. For now, we're going to stick with the big idea. Peter's big idea is Christians are richly blessed. The elect are blessed with a home. One of the major themes through all literature of all time is the greatness of finding home. By the way, finding a home where we live right now is incredibly difficult. It is hard, which actually only further deepens the, the image here. It's a really important thing. I, I want to show, show you a cartoon that taps into one of the deepest fears in human beings, and that is that we will never get to the real perfect home. That because of some little mistake, something we forgot... We can't get in. Uh, Bizarro cartoon, guy arrives at the gates of heaven and is told, sorry, your username and password don't match. (laughs) Every day. Right? Thankfully, the truth is that we have a guaranteed eternal place of belonging. Those who are chosen of God, those who choose to trust Jesus, have an eternal home. And we belong in that home because Christians are blessed like Israel. Peter uses words straight out of Isaiah 43, Exodus 19. These are passages that describe Israel as God's precious possession. The point is that all Christians, Jew or Gentile, are blessed in the same way. Christians are grafted onto, back to Romans 9 through 11 that Paul was referencing, they're grafted onto the same root blessings given to Israel. Look at this. Years ago, I purchased a tree. It was sold to me as a white blooming redbud tree. There's no such thing as a white blooming redbud tree. It doesn't exist, right? But it's okay. It's a beautiful tree. What it was, actually, was a dogwood uh, genus cornus, a dogwood tree that was grafted onto a redbud base. Genus cornus grafted onto genus circus. Made for a beautiful tree. Just bloomed gorgeously. But like all redbuds, has a fairly short lifespan. And eventually, its time was up, and all that was left was this stump in my front yard. I want you to look at that stump and keep that in mind while I show you a quick, quick overview of biblical history. The Bible says that the days we're in right now, the church age, the days that Peter's talking about of the church, they have a terminus. They will not go on forever. There will be a day when they have run their cycle and they will be cut off. Then follows a tribulation period and then that kingdom period that the Old Testament and the minor prophets promise, right? The Messiah's physical kingdom. When you think about this, understand this. That kingdom age that is to come, it is going to include a a renewed Israel that is springing up from the branch of the old Messiah. Can you see it? I want you to look carefully at my stump. What color are the blossoms that are coming out of there? They're red. They're not white. They They are red bud 
blossoms. There was still life in the old stump, and it was tied to the life of the original tree. That's Israel. While the church age lasts, we Gentiles and Jews who trust Jesus, we get to enjoy blessings like Israel. But one day, the church is going to be gone from the earth, and the stump of Israel is going to eventually sprout again and experience all the blessings promised in Messiah's kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? We, we're the Cornus genus that is grafted onto the Circus genus. We get to have fun with all of Israel's blessings while they are applied to us in the church age. But when we're gone, God will still keep all those unconditional promises that he made to Israel. Dr. Edwin Blum summarized this really well. The quote, look in your notes. I put his quote in your notes. It said, Peter applies to the church various terms originally spoken concerning Israel. But this doesn't mean the church is Israel or even the church replaced Israel in the plan of God. Well, then why does Peter apply Old Testament terminology to the church? Well, he does so chiefly because the conviction that Old Testament writings are for the church and that these writings speak to Jesus and his times. The functions that Israel was called into existence to perform in its day of grace, the church now performs in a similar way. In the future, according to Paul, you can see Romans 9 through 11 here, God once again will use Israel to bless the world. Close quote. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, Christians are blessed to be God's people. Look, we, we're called by God. We're led by Him from darkness into light. In the Bible, and in fact in all other classical literature, darkness is often used as a metaphor for tyranny. For tyranny. Moving from, from darkness to light it signifies moving out from under despotism and into freedom. Uh, the late Michael Kelly really understood this. Michael Kelly um, was a writer, a very gifted writer. He wrote uh, about the liberation of Kuwait in 1991. Uh, in 2003, he was embedded with U.S. troops and wrote a great deal about the liberation of Iraq. And one of the metaphors that he used all the time was light to dark, dark to light. Sadly, uh, Michael Kelly was killed in 2003 uh, when there was an attack on the troops with whom he, the U.S. troops with whom he was embedded. I want to read to you one of his last dispatches. This was, this was sent to the Atlantic Monthly in 2003. Tyranny, says Mr. Kelly, is truly a horror. An immense, endlessly bloody, endlessly painful, endlessly varied, endless crime, not against humanity in the abstract, but against a lot of humans in the flesh. It is, as Orwell wrote, a jackboot forever stomping on the human face. Anything is better than life with your face under the boot. Close quote. He could, God could write. We were stuck in darkness under the boot of the tyranny of sin, and God called us to the light. Amazing blessings are ours. Look, we have a home to which we belong. We are blessed on the stump of Israel. We're fully God's people, and Christians are blessed with a purpose. Look at verse 9 and the Isaiah passage on which verse 9 is built. They show our purpose. We're to praise the Lord in all that we do and say. This is part of our spiritual sacrifice. Now, praises, in, in my Bible, the word translated praises is arete, or arete, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, we've, we've done this one before, but it's your, it's your second fancy word for the day. On the count of three, say arete. One, two, three. Arete. Very good. Arete describes excellence. Something that's excellent, especially when it is a mighty work that is excellent. So when you're, when you're watching sports and, and you see some absolutely amazing thing done by human beings. You can't have, you, yeah, you cheer and applaud, right? Because that's arete. That's the, the right response to it. Um, look at this. 
the, the Viennese people love music, and they're known for being very stingy. They're not like Americans. They don't give standing ovations. But this is the Berliner Philharmonic, which was doing uh, the Brandenburg Concertos, and, and, the, and the Viennese audience could not help it. It was so brilliantly done. They all just rose up at the end. Yeah! They're just screaming because that's arete, right? That's how you respond to it. How many, how many of you know the old Dean Martin song, That's Amore? That's amore. All right. If Dean had studied First Peter, I think he might have changed the words to that's arete. All right. Here, here's what he might have sung. He might have said, when you stand and applaud because he's mighty God, that's arete. Come on, everybody together. When you sing with feeling because God is the king, that's arete. When you turn up your face because God bestows grace, that's arete. Right? That's it. Mighty God the king. Yes. Hurry up, guys. I got to get a tattoo of it, too. Sorry, that's from one of Dean's albums. Anyway, um, all of God's excellent work is arete. And our natural response is just to rise up and praise him for it. Amen? All right, let's do so starting in prayer. Pray with me. Father, you've given us a job. You, we are your priests, all of us who, who are your elect, all of us who have trusted Jesus. And I want to first ask your forgiveness because we... Um, well, those people in Isaiah, we resemble them a whole lot more than we'd like to confess. We don't do our job of offering spiritually accepted sacrifices, at least not much of the time. At least I don't, and I am sorry. I thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus, and I pray that you will cause me to sing your arete all the time. Engage me, Lord, that I can praise my God from whom all blessings flow.